Welcome to the Giving Voice to Depression podcast, produced in partnership with Mental Health America of Wisconsin. We are your co-hosts, Bridget and Terry. Each week through intimate, candid conversations with guests, we explore different perspectives on and experiences of depression. We keep it real because the illness is real. We keep it hopeful because there truly is hope in spite of what depression tells you. We are not experts or therapists. We're sisters and best friends who live with depression and have interviewed hundreds of others who do as well. By sharing stories of lived experiences, we expose depression for the lying bully it is. Hi, Bridget. Hey, Terry. Well, we certainly stirred the pot with last week's episode, Post-Hospitalization Risks. The reason we produced the episode is because it seems clear that neither the general public nor the specific people who need to know are being adequately informed or understanding just how fragile and dangerous a time the weeks after inpatient psychiatric care are for people who are or have been suicidal. And we need to know Mm -hmm. so that we can keep ourselves and others safe. And so people who've been discharged don't feel like unique failures for still feeling bad or maybe even worse after treatment. And the people around them will be on the lookout for what they need to be on the lookout for because they'll know and they can be supportive versus being judgmental in a time of post-hospitalization crisis because they've all been clearly informed that suicidal death rates rise significantly at this time. And by significantly, we remind that according to a new report by the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention, quote, in the month after patients leave inpatient psychiatric care, their suicide death rate is 300 times higher in the first week and 200 times higher in the first month than the general population's. In today's episode, we continue our discussion with Becky Stoll, Vice President for Crisis and Disaster Management for Centerstone, a not-for-profit mental health center that cares for more than 63,000 people a year. Our focus this episode is best practices for keeping people safe during this time of transition. So I've never called someone back between their first and second episodes, but your first one really struck a nerve. And there are people who were really grateful to learn what you said, and then there were people who were really angry that the risk had not been made clear to them, especially people who had lost someone during that transition period. I hate that. I mean, personally and professionally makes me sad that people were surprised by that, but I'm not surprised by that. You know, it t- sometimes it takes a while for that kind of information to pollinate out into into the general masses. So I'm not surprised at all that people who actually have transitioned out and their loved ones didn't know um, that that's kind of a, a hot time. We have to do better. Becky advocates for industry-wide improvements in mental health care, and in particular, expanding best practices for that fragile time between in- and outpatient care for people who might be suicidal. She says it all starts by creating a culture that makes suicide prevention its highest priority. Where we know better, we have to do better. And we really leaned heavily into this focus on error reduction and safety. Um, and that's not easy to do. You know, it's hard to turn a big ship often. You know, systems of care are not very nimble, but, you know, over time you do build this culture 
where everybody's kind of in the boat rowing in the same direction. So uh, <clears throat> I'm correct in that previously, or maybe primarily now, that the inpatient facilities thought their job was done when you were discharged, and that the outpatient facilities thought their job began when you came to the door. Right. Okay. Yeah, I think that's where I think that's where we've seen this. You know, you're driving down the road, and there's a gap in the road, and and in that gap, I think the question that that everybody's not paid attention to is, well, whose patient is that person during that two days, three days a week? Are they still the inpatient provider's patient, or are they the outpatient provider's patient? I think what's happened is they're nobody's patient, mm-hmm. and the statistics, you know, probably show that that they were on no one's grid. Nobody was taking responsibility. Uh, I would argue that they're both. So I think they're the outpatient providers' patient until they've been securely, you know, in, in, uh, engaged in service on that end. And I think the second the appointment's made, you're the outpatient providers' patient, so that we're you know, covering and making sure that the the baton gets passed uh, and it's firmly placed in in the next person's hand before we let go of it. (laughs) Becky offers two examples of what that baton pass can look like and how it maintains uninterrupted care. I know there was a system out in Houston. They had a system at their community mental health center where if you were going to discharge out of an inpatient psych hospital, your family did not pick you up at the psych facility, the inpatient facility. Um, a couple of times a day, they took people that were discharging and were going to have appointments at the mental health center over to it mm. so that you could, or the day of discharge, you kind of met your folks. And so then you would get picked up, you know, to go home from the outpatient provider's location. So I thought that was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a lot of logistical issues while that's hard to do and mm-hmm. But I thought that was pretty cool, especially for a big metropolitan area like Houston. As an example on the receiving end of the baton, Centerstone has hospital liaisons who connect with patients at their inpatient facility before they even come to Centerstone for outpatient care. And there, uh, there's a person assigned to all the inpatient facilities, um, and they allow us to come into their facility and work with the folks who are going to come into our system. So we make sure you know when your appointment is, that you can make it. Is there anything that you know you feel like is going to prevent you from coming to that appointment? Or, you know, letting them know, hey, you're going to see Terry for therapy. So I know him. He's a great guy, you know. And kind of doing that, I don't think that's an escalate. I think that's a really nice sedan that will get you to your job every day. So it's you know in, in systems of care sometimes you got to take as good as you can get and I think that's kind of as good as you can get. Becky says it's important to perform a thorough suicide risk screening. You know there's no science to this but we have to identify the people coming through our doors as best we can. Um, it's not an eye scan that we can do or a thumbprint scan or a blood test. It, it's not. I mean, gosh, I wish it was that simple. So, so we try to use the tools that we have and the clinical judgment we have to ID folks. Once we identify individuals to be at high risk of suicide, they're on the, you know, we've kind of put them on the grid. And if we've put them on the grid and we said they're at high risk, it's our responsibility to at least make sure we know when people kind of veer off of the grid. You can think of the grid as similar to an air traffic control system for humans, like the radar screens that an airplane's on. 
As an airplane flies from one place to another, different towers monitor its path until it safely reaches its destination. If there's a problem, emergency procedures are activated. In this case, departure is from the inpatient facility, and the destination is continued care and recovery in an outpatient environment. I mean, it's hard. It's very, it's very hard, and it's slow, and it takes a lot of time, but we have found it didn't take enormous amounts of money to do that. It's really process change uh, in the way you do things, you know, what tools you're, you're using and the processes. Transforming our electronic health record was really a pivotal point for us where we were able to le- leverage, you know, our EHR in ways that we, we didn't imagine. You know, simple stuff like if you're in the pathway, your name's in red, just kind of indicated to you, hey, they're, they're at high risk right now. Um, but the cool things that they did were, um, so if someone entered or exited our suicide prevention pathway, the system will do a 90-day look back of all the providers that have provided service to that person uh, over that 90-day time period, and it will shoot an email, a high alert email goes out to them um, when someone enters and exits, so that the whole treatment team of people who are um, treating that person are on the same page at the same time. Centerstone's grid also tracks patient appointment times, and not keeping one triggers a system response. And then the the grooviest thing they did, and our staff really, really, really loved, is if um, our process is if someone is in the suicide prevention pathway, and they were supposed to see me at 9 o'clock this morning for therapy or a med appointment or whatever, any kind of appointment, um, if they're not there by about 15 after of the appointment, our staff are to call them and just see if you can get them on the phone. If you do, you know, you touch base with them, maybe do a risk assessment and reschedule that appointment. Um, if that staff member does not get them on the phone, they go into our electronic health record and they mark that the person did not show. Becky says the second they do that, the person's name pops up in purple at Centerstone's crisis call center, indicating to staff that a prevention pathway patient is off the safety grid. And so everything they can do, they're going to try to find them. So we're calling them, uh, we're calling their emergency contacts. um, And in a small number, a very small number of cases, um, we've done, you know, welfare checks where we felt like it, you know, that it was highly dangerous or something imminent might be going on. Becky says the vast majority of the time, the person just forgot or couldn't make the appointment. Even then, they appreciate the check-in. Um, but a very small percentage of time, um, we have seen um, suicide attempts that were in process, including a patient that was standing on a bridge here in town uh, about to leap to their death. Uh, and we called them as they're standing on the bridge, and they answered. Wow. It's just given us this capacity to say these folks are at a you know in a tough situation right now. They're at high risk, and if they kind of drop off the radar, it really is an onus on us to try to reach out and find them and make sure they're okay. Even with these industry-leading practices in place, Becky says we're still on about the 50-yard line. But at least, you know, I feel like some of us, not just Centerstone, but there's a you know, few agencies kind of out in front, uh, and, and I envision us chopping down, you know, the weeds in the forest so that 
you know, that path becomes clearer and how you do this becomes clearer. And so the, you know, probably hundreds of thousands of providers across the country that are behind us, um, some farther back than others, but, you know, that that path looks a little bit clearer than it, than it looks today. Excellent. Becky helps clear the path and raise the bar by spreading word of best practices. Next week, I'll be in Dallas um, teaching at a Zero Suicide Institute, and there'll be lots of providers there learning about how myself and other entities did this. The next week, I'll be in Houston doing the exact same thing. I've got to go to Iowa. I'm going to Idaho. I'll be in Chicago. You know, so it's a lot of people really stepping up uh, at systems of care and saying, we've heard about this, we know we're not doing an adequate job, and and trying to, you know, we're hoping people don't have to go back and reinvent the wheel, and that when you embed this kind of framework into your system uh, and weave it into your operations, uh, hopefully the bar has been raised and and we're helping everybody else, you know, rise up to to where it's just really good standard care. Mm -hmm. As she travels the country, Becky sees evidence the bar is rising and believes it will continue to rise. So, so I think it was a lack of, you know, knowledge, um, maybe taking your foot off the gas and not, you know, really tending to some of these pieces that needed to be tended to. That's why I'm super hopeful because I think now, I think we're getting to a place where it, it's going to be common standard practice. If you're not doing these sets of things, then you're really missing the mark and you're not offering high quality care. So I'll let you go, except I just want to ask one like ending question here. So for other people in care fields, for other people who are involved in treatment, uh-huh. what's the message to them? We, you know, at least know some things that seem to work and where we have those sweet little soft spots that we know we can make an impact and there's research behind it, there's evidence behind it, and there's best practice behind it, we have to embrace that and mold that, you know, back into our, the way we're providing treatment, whether that's a provider, you know, who's who's in their own private practice or if it's a system of care where a lot of heavy resource can be leveraged against that um, is we know better now and, and, then, and then the places we can um, I really see across the U.S. that that everybody's trying to do better, and that do better is based on at least the science that we have mm-hmm. at the moment. So I challenge everyone who's in um, in the field um, is to get yourself educated uh, on what is doing better now, uh, and, and implement that so that we can try to see this number that keeps climbing and climbing and climbing year over year um, can change direction. Uh, and not only try to get people to not kill themselves, that's the first piece of it, but also to help people find a way to live meaningful, purposeful lives that they mm-hmm. want to live. So I think you have to have A and B, um, and, and hopefully all of us can do that that's in the, in the field. Becky, I feel so much better. Thank you so much for raising the bar and being a leader and for getting out there and teaching everybody else. And I just love that concept that she ended with, that it's not just about keeping somebody alive. It's wanting that person to feel and believe that they have a meaningful, purposeful life that they want to live. And 
that change in addition to the others just sounds like oh, like makes me want to exhale. You know, it just sounds like yes, yes, that's what needs to happen. So exactly all these efforts, and we'll we'll again link as we did last episode to the Time Magazine article and the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention report that Becky helped write, which spells all this out if anybody wants it in more detail. And Becky's mission of know better, do better also applies to um, the patient. Now they have more information and now they can make some different decisions. Family and friends involved need to take some responsibility too. Um, In the name of being educated, knowing what to look for and knowing what to do, we have a list of things to consider to help support somebody who has just been discharged. Mm-hmm. And prior to being discharged, it's great if you can meet with the patients or your loved one's care team and ask questions if that's possible. Yeah, and become familiar if there's any safety plan that was drawn up in treatment so that everybody's clear on what that would look like and what their role in that plan is. Mm-hmm. And then there's a a house sweep that they talk about so that if you know that there are means within the place the person's being discharged to, your home or or their own home, um, make sure there's not meds there that they could use or a gun or any of the other things that they may have identified in their safety plan just for the period of crisis. Remove those things from the home. We're not talking about violating anybody's constitutional rights, just keeping them safe and alive. Right. Sweep the house. And educate the rest of the family and the rest of the support team so that everybody is in on the loop. Mm-hmm. And connect them with peer support specialists who are available. And if it's a kid, make sure the school counselor knows what happened and what is happening so they can keep an eye on them at school. Right. And be sure that the patient um, knows when their appointments are and makes it to all the scheduled appointments. Follow-up is essential. So... Maybe people can provide reminders of the appointment, location, time, and perhaps even provide transportation if needed. Absolutely. Go with them. Yep. And keeping the patient themselves engaged in their care is essential as well. Uh, Often, the patients with serious mental health illnesses disengage and fail to take full advantage of available services and support. So keeping everybody engaged and informed. Absolutely. So two very important episodes. If you didn't listen to the first one, please go back and do so. That would have been episode 133. And it's just a time that we need to be really tuned into to keep people safe. So thank you, Becky. Thank you, Bridget. Thank you, Centerstone. We truly hope that our podcast brings a little more understanding, helps you better articulate your experience of depression, or better understand how to support someone else's. We invite you to join us for daily posts on the Giving Voice to Depression Facebook page and on Twitter and Instagram at Voice Depression. It is a comfort to be among fellow travelers on Depression's Dark Road. And remember, if you're struggling, speak up. If someone else is, listen up.